Hey boy, you are man. Your voice is so masculine. I suggest you to have a surgery to change your voice. Boy, male, 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 he, him. You born as a male. You are living as a male. You will die as a male. So, <laughs> I've had some correspondence this week. That is, wow. That's, <laughs> I would that's, call it coherent. <laughs> no, yeah, coherent's not the word I would use. No, no. Um, I, I, honest, honestly, I'm impressed. <laughs> obviously, it's very hinged, incredibly hinged and normal, the, the, the messages I've been getting. It's like weirdly <laughs> frothing. Right? Yeah. Here's the thing. If someone had like done that with with like speech to text, like they dictated it, I could I could imagine someone saying that in an angry uh oh, like, like, just you know, an angry oh, like oh. that lad. Sitting sitting to type it down yeah. feels weird. Okay, like, why is... isn't Jonathan taking dictation from gamers for comments? <laughs> it is the the, the... It, it, it throws into sharp relief the reason why we have videos like that one that's been doing the rounds of that YouTuber who is just screaming about yeah. pronouns being in Starfield. Oh, the um, your your California bullshit because you know California invented the idea of pronouns. Yeah, oh, and, and and may I note the name of the company is Bethesda. You know why it's named Bethesda? Because it's named after the city it was founded in, Bethesda, Maryland. You fuckwit. Yeah, well, I mean that requires knowing things. Um, just just a basic grasp of historical context, which you know what, not everyone needs that. But if you're going to make it your job, yeah, it would yeah. behoove you yeah. to know about what you're talking about. But then again, uh, that doesn't seem to be a qualification for people that go online and start talking about trans people. Hello, everyone. By the way, my name is Stephanie Sterling. You might know me from a Starfield review that was several thousand words long, but had one sentence in it mentioning that Bethesda and Zenimax mistreated a trans employee. This has been an obsession for quite a few people online uh, the past few days. Um, this is the most harassed I've ever been over a review. I include Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, <laughs> No Man's Sky, like ga game reviews that have had my site DDoS'd, just the sustained amount and the way people are like going out of their way to get to me. Because the one place where I have DMs accessible, I mean, they're filtered, but you can send a DM unlike on Twitter, is my Instagram, mostly because on most days, if I get a message from a random, it's going to be someone saying I've got nice tits. And of course, I'm going to welcome that. It will be nice tits <laughs> or, hey, just asking out of interest, are you ever going to do an OnlyFans? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't make zero money. That I confirmed, <laughs> judging by the messages. Um, but people are going out of their way to like find any way they can get my attention. And when they do, it's that. It is Bunking word salad in my face. And and bizarre stuff. Like, of all the things to go after, my allegedly masculine voice, which I've been speaking on Podquisition and Gymquisition for a couple of weeks with a bit of a higher register. I'm dabbling in, like, voice training stuff. Uh, not necessarily because I feel a need to, but because I would like to. I you find are it. a performer. Well, yeah. Um, but at my most masculine, 
my voice could not be described as masculine. If I drop what I'm doing, no. that's it. This is as manly as it gets. And it's still kind of... Like, my voice never broke. I got made fun of at school for that. Like, it never properly broke. It got a bit deeper, but it didn't break and go deep, deep, um, like it does with other people. Because, I mean, I used to talk on recordings we did, like, ten years ago, uh, Conrad, where I would talk about my, what I called at the time, my fucked up hormones. Um, Like, I do suspect I'm some degree of intersex, um, just because of certain things. It's not just, you know, my Brit-phobia speaking when I say that, no, you do not (laughs) sound very masculine. And never I did have. have someone say that they, they thought all British people spoke like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like it's of all the things, like I've pointed this out before and people pointed it out in response to this, because obviously I've been making fun of it everywhere. Um, before I transitioned, my manliness was always called into question. You know, I was I, made I mean, fun of this, for being feminine and effect. This, and, and... this is the universal trans femme experience. Yeah. It's the... You're not masculine enough. You're not masculine enough. You're too feminine. Oh wait, you you want to be perceived that way? Man, 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 man. Yeah, nothing convinced them of my masculinity more than my femininity. Um, <laughs> ultimately, um, uh, I'll read one more, just because it's the one I've got up. All caps. Hey him. Hey him. Hey him. You're a man. When archaeologists find you, they'll find a man, a dude. <laughs> and this has just been the level of what I'm getting. It's, it's like a playground taunt. Like there's just oh, yeah. nothing yeah. there. Starfield has been like it's really brought out some some wild takes over nothing. It's been fascinating. My my one that I've been getting some some stuff my way for is I dared to point out, and this was when Shouty Man, who's angry about pronouns, was doing the rounds. I pointed out he didn't even have to look at the pronoun selection because this mm-hmm. game does a not necessarily great thing of, you know, it doesn't say gender selection. It does body type A, body type B. It tries to be ungendered. But based on the body type you pick, it will assume your pronouns. And the point I'm making there is he picked masculine body type and was presented he, him, and did not have to see they, them, or she, her. You know, mm-hmm. those would have required ticket clicking on a box. It just it it uh, it assumed what he wanted, and it was the thing that he wanted, and he still got upset. And there's people who were going, "Well, it should there shouldn't have been an option to change it if you picked the male body. Well, it should have it should have been he him that wasn't. There shouldn't have been a question mark whether it was he him." And I'm like, these walking vomitoriums are <sighs> so offended by pronouns. Like they don't even think they have them. You see them online saying they don't have pronouns and they don't agree with pronouns. Yeah, um, like they're 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 that like unhinged. Yeah, if you call a cis per, a cis man he him, you know that's not pronouns. That's just what he's called. It's only it's only pronouns if a trans person has them. Yeah, it's been wild because uh, you get these people furious at Starfield for having pronouns, then furious at other people for criticizing the pronouns in the wrong way as you did with the presentation of them, not the existence of them. And, of course, me being really under the fire by these people who... Like, one thing I've realised with these people is the way they're typing, they're frustrating themselves because they're that desperate to be insulting, and it's not satisfying them. I think that's what it is. 
They are trying to nail the perfect insult, but they only have like five that they repeat. So they start going in all caps and repeating them, giving this impression that they're screaming because I think that's what their minds are doing. I think they're, they are internally screaming because they can't get the venom out because they don't have the language for it. They don't have the language. So they just repeat the minuscule vocabulary that they have, that they've built around their hatred. But you get these people, they've got the fucking temerity to say that they're not transphobic. But optional pronouns that they don't even have to say is too much for them. And there is no way you can describe that as anything other than hatred. You can't say, oh, I've got no problem with with trans people. I just don't want it shoved down my throat, as they always love to say. And there it is, not shoved. They have to open their mouths and swallow it. And as I said in a video a few weeks ago, you can tell a lot about a throat by what it won't swallow. And that's what we're seeing. Um, This is such a huge self-report, ultimately. Um, But that's been my week. That's been my week. Other than that, other than a stoving headache that like lasted several days and just being a bit poorly. Um, but I have sort of bounced back today. How is everyone else? How are y'all um, doing? I've, um, I've had a busy week working on a bunch of stuff that is happening in the background. I'm very mm-hmm. tired from a lot of, stuff. Lot, of, lot of ongoing background projects. How about I you? got a direct message from someone who asked oh. me, do you regret giving Dark Souls a seven? <laughs> uh-huh. Oh I, my god, I I love the ones that don't let go. Like a decade uh, or more later, and well, they're still on it. Th- this do is, you, Conrad? Do you regret it? No, no. I, I, like why? Even though it's popular, like that's th- that's what they mean. Why would I regret that? Like, it doesn't make any yeah. sense whatsoever. You like, gave the it, lowest score possible to a game that sold over a, a million copies. So I'm objectively wrong. Is that... <laughs> Apparently. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the universe has decided you are wrong. Regret your words and deeds. Yeah. I mean, no. that's not even living rent-free in their heads. Like, when they're talking about reviews that are, like, t- over 10 years yeah. old, you've, like inherited the house you're not living there rent free you own it at that point you own that person conrad they're what, yours what's what's so you know and i and i told i replied with nope and they said fair enough and we moved on and i don't know <laughs> if we'll hear about this in another tech eight or not it was uh it was odd though because i don't get this because i am a you know cishet white guy basically i'm assuming I I just I mean this I used to get a to lot of shit when people thought I was, but then again I am. You also have much more outward out. and controversial you know opinions sometimes, and you're you know you have a a big platform for it, so you're yeah. you're always going That's, to attract it. Yeah, but, but no, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Yeah, you certainly don't get the level of of viciousness because I never used to get get it that vicious, yeah. and I never used to get told I'm too rude in my reviews or I'm screeching. <laughs> Um, that was that the now. selling point. Yeah, it always was. Yeah. Um. <laughs> d- fun. Fun fact. Do you remember when this podcast started? I used to get messages from people telling me, um, on a show that I was on with you, Steph, that yeah. I was be- that I was too loud and I swore too much and I was too rude. Yeah. I always knew, of course, because you know I I see 
um, yeah. trans people and women, like, and anyone sort of presenting femme online. And I see the messages they get. But it wasn't until I got to experience both sides of it, being accepted as um, a cishet man and then being seen as femme, to whatever degree these people want to see it, the change in the way people perceive me is startling. You know, the moment I came out, there were yeah. threads on like places like NeoGAF that were like, oh, I think Jim Sterling's having a mental breakdown. Like the amount of, of sentiments online that I've gone mad and that it's reflected in my content, which yep. hasn't changed. Yeah. Like now I'm angry, Welcome now I'm rude, now I'm mental. <laughs> like, and the thing is, I was mentally ill before yeah. I transitioned. Yeah, but it was nothing to do with the transition. Yeah, the thing. like... I'm, I've got the same suite of, of mental illness diagnoses. I'm just, like, less suicidal. So I'm a bit less mental, like, than I was. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. Well, well, welcome to, welcome to Podquisition. This is a video game podcast. Yeah, Starfield shit. <laughs> yeah, let, can I just, I'm not going to, like, do a sort of games of the week talk about Starfield, but I, as has so happened somewhat frequently on this show, where I've had early impressions, then played more and come back the next week. We had that with Starfield, where last week I was certainly lukewarm. Oh, I no. was not impressed. Oh, no. I was at the point where, like, you know, six. 5.5 score wise wouldn't have been surprised obviously lower than that in the review and very sort of very merciless towards the game the more i played it the more offended i got it's another one of these games like redfall that really put paid to that belief that a negative review will turn positive thanks to sorcery if you play more of the game oh you didn't finish the game etc the more I played of Starfield, the more disgusted I was by its lack of imagination. And that's what it keeps coming back to to me, aside from all the glitches, aside from how dated it is um, in many ways, how small it is. Yeah, it's got like, what, a million planets, like thousands of planets. Most of them have the same spaceport with the same cave network in it, like... I don't know, has your opinion changed, Laura? No, um, I tried to play more and my opinion very solidly sits at I have too many accessibility barriers to mm. enjoy the moment to moment and that is going to be a barrier that will prevent me ever getting into this game enough to really see why people love yeah. it. That speaks perfectly to my issue of the lack of imagination and the rote repetition that Starfield is compared to Fallout and Skyrim. So lacking in imagination that, to them, accessibility really is the difference between toggling or holding the trigger for Iron Sights. Yeah. That's it. The stuff that's existed for a decade. I know a lot of people who are very into the, into the loop of it, but I... And I know that, you know, this is the kind of game I could get into in in the right settings but i i just can't get that that rhythm of playing going enough to mm. to stick with it it i i i have not seen very much of it and i never will 
Yeah. And honestly, what you've seen is enough. It doesn't really change. Yeah. It's the same quests where, you know, I understand coming off the back of Baldur's Gate 3. Like, that is a fucking tough act to follow for anything. But when you're playing a game where the quests feel natural and embedded in the world and one adventure leads you to the next and then you get Starfield, which is just a list of fetch quests that send you to one place then send you right back to meet all of these NPCs who meet you and immediately trust you with their life stories and secrets because, as I pointed out, like, they know you're the protagonist. It's yeah. the only reason. No, you are correct. Like, I, I did I did do another session because I was getting some footage for a video and, like, even, like, really early on, one of the very first, like, plot quests they send you to is, hey, there's these magic artifacts that, you, that you're trying to collect for the big space organisation uh, let's let's go talk to this one. We, this person we've heard has one, and you meet him after like shooting a couple of enemies, and he's like, "Oh, that thing didn't even know what it was." Sure, you can have my apparently important space relic. Goodbye. Like, there's no, yep. there's like zero attempt for him to be like, "Can I have something for it?" Or like, you know, it was just like, "Yeah, no, take take my one of a kind space artifact." You did shoot like two people. I mean, the game even kicks off with this. Hello, stranger. You're the protagonist. Do you want my spaceship? Yes. Sure, leave me stranded on this shithole of a planet. Just take my spaceship. I trust you. Because, again, they can't think their way around this. They just want to take you from fetch quest to fetch quest. It might not have bored the pants off everyone else. Like, they might still have all the excitement in the world for this shit. But Starfield, for me, hammers so deeply the same RPG tropes I've seen for decades, plural. Like the one I complained about in the review of the disrespected protagonist. The fact that developers these days still think it's funny to have every guard in a city mutter shit about you as you walk past them. Like, I deal with that in real life. I don't need it in a game. Especially a game where you can't, like, answer back to them. You're the heavily armed badass who is saving the lives of these shitty citizens constantly. And everyone who sees you just, I've got nothing to say to you. You look stupid. I know you're describing Starfield, but for a split second I was like, wait, are you talking about Final Fantasy XVI? Did I miss a switch in the conversation? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I'm fucking done with it. I am done with inhabiting worlds that are just so hostile to you. Seemingly because the developers still think it's funny. And I've never laughed at some random fucking nobody talking to me like I'm a piece of shit when it's so visually obvious that I could tear their fucking face off. I I reached such a level of hostility in one area of Starfield where there was a line of guards and it was like taking a walk of shame as you walk (laughs) past all of them and every single one has something shitty and snide to say. And and I'm fucking over it. Just over it. That's fair. Uh, What have you been up to this week, Conrad? You been uh, playing anything? Well, I... uh... 
I'm playing Stardew Valley again. Oh, uh, yeah. I haven't played in... Well, I, I think I started a game last year, maybe. Played one day and then never bothered to load the save again. <laughs> um, but my wife Linda's been getting been playing a lot of games lately and um had asked about it and i had realized that they put i knew they put a co-op in there mm. i didn't realize it was local yeah yeah and that's fun in yeah. local co-op yeah I, I i like i think it's it's interesting how they implemented it because it's sort of like Borderlands. Uh-huh. Which sounds like a strange comparison, but it, you remember when you would play Borderlands in multiplayer, uh, but all of your quest lines were, like, independent of each other, and oh. so you could come wandering into a game, you know, where you didn't have a completed quest? This, yeah. This, like, creates a sub-save within their main game save that has its entire own quest line. And, like, all of the functions and everything just completely independent, just embedded in that game that you're loading in when you join the co-op game. Interesting. It is. Um, And that has some pluses and minuses. Like, it means that you can get all of the rewards for a lot of these things multiple times um which is that can be useful in early game and things like that you can accomplish twice the labor you know mm. in in you know a given time um not a huge issue in the early phases of Stardew Valley um but still you know helpful but you share finances the finances are all tied to the farm itself. Oh. And you don't share equipment. Like You get the full starting set of equipment and you acquire the other bits of equipment in the same ways that you would get it in a single player game as the mm. co-op player. You just have your own independently running like cutscene thing that you have to go through. And the other player isn't interrupted at all. But what's also not interrupted is the timer. So you could lose half a day on some of these cutscenes oh. while the other player or players are running around doing stuff. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't hate it. Oh, well, then the other side of that too is because you can do all this labor. If the single player comes back and decides to just play on their own for a few days, which you can do, you're not, you know, required to yeah. have anybody else there. You've just cre possibly created a ton of additional maintenance work for them to do on crops. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. One, if you load in multiple days later... Like, it feels like it's built with the intent that everyone is going to start together and be there for all the sessions, but while providing the option for them not to be. Because mm -hmm. if I come back in in summer now, having missed half of spring because she was playing it on her own, there are things that I won't be able to accomplish in terms of spring quests and goals that I'll have to wait until next year to do and hope that I'm there when she's playing. It's, there's, it's neat. The, the like complexities of running these in sort of parallel, um, because that's really what it feels like it's doing. Um, mm. it's, it's odd in a game like this. Like, and I have all my own relationships with characters. 
You know, yeah. we're both pursuing the same person. <laughs> it will wind up being some weird poly thing, I'm sure. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Neat game. Interesting implementation of co-op. Really enjoyed interesting. that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Steph, should we talk about the thing we've both been playing this week? Yeah. Now, you and I were, like, really bitching about this game last night <laughs> as I was playing it with uh, messaging. Um, <laughs> my estimation of it has gone up since. However, the criticisms remain. We are talking about Lies of P. The first game I've had a proper review copy of in years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other week I, I, I saw a post about review code. I was like, ah, we can get you in on that stuff. We'll get, get yeah, you in. Yeah, yeah. It turned out they were fans of mine over there. So uh, that helped. So yeah, the review may very well be up before this podcast is up. So my thoughts will yeah. be known. So Laura, if you'd like to sort of take yeah. Point. So this is this is that we talked about the demo for it that was put up a little while yeah. back. It's that sort of Pinocchio, Bloodborne, Dark Soulsy uh, game. I have not had as much time to put into this as I would ideally like. I've had other work stuff going on this week, but I will say I think that um, the dodge. Uh, was one of the 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 big complaints um, around that demo, and the dodge definitely does feel a bit nicer now. I want to like this game a lot, and ninety percent of the time I really like it. Like maybe even more than that. Like most of the time I'm playing this, I think that it does a really good job of like uh, environmental design and tone setting and building its whole little world as a place that I I want to dig into. Everything set up here is a little bit forced, but in a way that's kind of endearing. Like, the first time you realise that the whole deal is, ah, puppets have essentially, like, a Asimov's laws of robotics, and one of them is that they can't lie, but you're Pinocchio, the one that can lie. Um, you're not Pinocchio. This is the bit I find charming. You're Sorry, you're not Pinocchio. Yeah. Yeah, I find some of the tenuous links make me cringe a bit. Like... Yes. Oh, Jiminy Cricket. Sorry, no, is... not Jiminy, Gemini. Gemini. That's the thing, Gem yeah. Gemini. Gemini. That's the tenuous thing. He's called Gemini, but they sort of awkwardly try yeah, and pronounce Gemini, it Gemini. Gemini. That makes me cringe. But the one thing I find truly charming about all these tenuous links is for a game with such a, a deliciously stupid concept as What If Pinocchio But Bloodborne, the one thing that they thought might be a bit ridiculous is that Pinocchio be called Pinocchio. They're like, that might stretch credibility. Let's call him P. I'm still going to call him Pinocchio because he's the puppet boy that can tell lies. He's Pinocchio. Although I will say, my, my favourite thing about him just being called P is when you start unlocking the ability to activate your P organs. Yes! I love I the love, P organ. Uh, strengthen <laughs> your P organ, Steph. Strengthen your P organ. <laughs> I love like all of the the stuff this game is doing with its like um design elements. Um fun fact, don't know if you've heard this stuff. You know how like in the early game like the first like handful of bosses and mini bosses are all just robocops? Yeah. This game was originally going to have an an A cab quest line that got pulled because the developers cowered it out and thought it would be too controversial. Oh my. They were going to have A pab all puppets are bastards. And they took it out. Oh, um, that is... Like, there's enough plausible deniability there as well. Right, like, right. <laughs> they could have been like, oh, we're not really 
We're not. They're not. We're not saying cops. We're yeah. saying puppets. They'd have got away with that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> I love it though. <laughs> it's fucking great. So most of the time, I'm really enjoying it. It it is surprisingly polished. It in in its best moments, it feels like up there with, you know, our FromSoft Dark Souls in terms of like consistency of mechanics. Like mm-hmm. when it's at its best. When it's, it's so at its polished. best. It, yeah, it 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 feels really good to play. Mm. The problem, well, okay, I have two major problems with it. The first one, I very rarely play decks in any like Soulsborne game, and I decided to play decks in this one. And m- overall, this game has a problem with not offering you enough early weapon variety and not giving you enough options early on to pick up a weapon outside of, like, the stat that you picked as your starting weapon to play around with before you have to commit to what you're doing. I got really annoyed, because I always play decks in these games. Yeah. And the first few weapons are all strength or... Sorry, uh, motivity. Yes. Or magic, sorry, advance. (laughs) But, like, yeah, this is the point, is as someone that very rarely plays decks... I Look, I like the rapier that you start with. I think it's a fun weapon. But the problem is, there is a particular lack of dex weapons for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, how how many hours in would you say it was when you get that um that, that boss soul vendor that Let's finally see. gives you a, a decent other uh, dex weapon? I mean, it was... It would have been over five. It, it would yeah. have been, like, a regular action game's length before... And that's actually yeah. something true of the game overall. There are a lot of neat mechanics and systems that are so deep into the game as to almost feel hidden. And the the, the boss weapons are one of them. Uh, by the time you find it, has a, a dex weapon. It's an A scaling. Like, I got it. Visually, it's great. Like, just a quirky concept. Its moveset is basically the rapius. Yes. And then I had to play, like, a while more before mm. I finally got a trident. That was really genuinely cool. I will say, just in the game's favour, you can get those items that change the scaling of a weapon, which yes. is a great idea. But as with the interesting weapon crafting system, it is clear these weapons were designed yes. for their original states and intentions. Yeah. And and the thing is, is even if you wanted to make that kind of effort to be like, I like the move set, but I want it to be scaling with a different stat, you would need a lot of that item to fundamentally change, like the stat makeup of a weapon. And those items to to do that sort of scaling change are just too infrequent to make that really viable. Like they are very much designed for bump up what this weapon is already supposed to be doing. There's also a system to do with like. Taking apart weapons and putting new parts together. Yeah. And Great in th- idea in theory. Yeah. Because, like, even with a lack of um, other weapons, what I could do was keep the uh, the rapier handle, which scaled with... Uh, with uh, It's dex. I don't, I don't dex. know what they call it. Technique, but it's yes. dex. You, you, can keep, you could put a different end on that and still have it scale with dex and still do basically the same type of moveset, but it would have different specials, and in the case of the one that I swapped on there that was like a big uh, electric baton, I was dealing electric damage rather than Mm -hmm. just pure um, um, brute force. Mm -hmm. And I like that you can experiment with different like modifier and damage types 
while keeping a base that has the same um, damage scaling. I think that that's a neat idea in practice. But as you say, like the moveset doesn't change. Uh, or the fundamentals of the moveset. Your lights and heavies don't change. And I think why yeah. that's a problem is, like using the rapier as an example, that rapier's moveset is designed around a certain length. It is around yeah. poke, poke, poke at a specific length, and then like you automatically jump backwards to safety, assuming that you were attacking at rapier length. If you put something shorter on the end of that, you have to get in closer to do the, the attacks, yeah. and that leap backwards no longer brings you back into safe position. I mean, look... I tried the rapier handle with an axe head. I gave it an honest yeah. go. Oh, was but that when that you're fire doing the axe? thrusting, yeah, because I liked the fire axe yeah. um, for a while, but it was a bit slower than I wanted. It's why I went deck, so I wanted quicker attacks. So I was like, I really like the axe, and I worked fucking hard to get it. So I'll plonk it onto the rapier. And when you're doing thrusting attacks with a range that is barely beyond your own fist, um, it just doesn't work. And that's a shame. Yeah, it, it is not as exciting of a feature in practice as it it promises to be. Um, the other issue with this game, and I'm now hitting the point um, that was your you, where you had your dip in opinion on this game, and the I understand why. Go to hell. Yes. So there is uh, there is one boss in particular that we're both thinking about, but um, generally so. This game has some like weird difficulty spikes. And they're difficulty spikes that at times can feel just a bit bullshit. They're not like, this is a difficult challenge and I feel like my failure is my own. There are some times where bosses will throw out things that just feel like there is very little I can do about them. Like, prior to this, there was um one a bit further back that was a big um fiery furnace boss in a room full of pillars, and it would sometimes yeah. like fill the whole floor up with fire. Yeah, he's a gear. Yeah, and the 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 spike there was, if you happen to be really close when that wind up starts and like it's already destroyed all the pillars, sometimes there's nothing you can do to avoid getting fire damage over time applied to yeah. you. And there are items you can use to dispel that, but there is no vendor at that point in the game you can purchase that that consumable item from. So if you have a couple of them in your pocket and you're like, okay, well I'll use them if I accidentally get that fire effect on myself. Nope, I used them all. Now I've got to fight you with no way to mitigate your attack that sometimes I just have no option but to get hit by. There are little moments like that where it just kind of spikes out of nowhere. And it and some of those moments are real frustrating and leave a negative taste on the pacing of the game. I think what really, really um, makes that a pain in my ass is how hard it pushes the perfect blocking yes, system. Yes, we were, we were talking about this. Now, I said when Sekiro came out, I understand it's a good game, I can't play it, because hmm. I like to dodge, I like to block, I cannot parry to save my life. Yeah. To its credit, I'll start with the good bit, to its credit, this is the first game I have ever played in my life where... Blocking perfectly felt doable as a first-line strategy. There's something about it where I get it here. If you go back to when we talked about the demo of this a while back, you were unhappy with that lack of dodge. And I was saying this at the time. I was like, I don't mind that the dodge is a little iffy because those first, like, two or three bosses, I 
I was super loving that block. Like the the perfect block setup is really fun in that if you do a regular block and you like do it a little early and it's not a perfect block, it's kind of like Bloodborne in that sort of give and take of health where you lose a bit of tempor health temporarily, but if you stay aggressive you can earn it back. And that paired alongside the perfect blocks which in those first few bosses are like very clearly telegraphed and it's like if you fuck this up you're going to get punished but if you learn the timings you are going to feel like a badass meant that I felt like really confident just standing my ground and playing aggressive and that was really yeah. fun for a while for a while <laughs> and then we come to the the bit where it undermines its own mechanic <sighs> by yeah. enemies not just bosses but even like you get to a point where even regular enemies I mean hell even the starter enemies like, the little dudes with canes have a moveset that includes an, a, a, an attack that winds up, then delays to try and trick you into mm -hmm. blocking, then swings, combined with a different move that just instantly swings and hits. So you get so yeah. many enemies designed like that to where they're deliberately throwing you off your game and trying to make you distrust the mechanic that it is emphasizing above all other defensive strategies. And it just gets on my wick. And I think it's important to note, like, what we mean by saying that this game, like, tries to encourage you to use that block above other defensive strategies in that bosses in particular have these attacks where they will sort of glow red as they do them. And you might get lucky and dodge them, but they are designed to be undodgeable. They are designed to be attacks that you have to perfect guard against, realistically. They are, you're like, the area this is gonna hit is so big, you need to be, like, facing this head-on. And I really like that mechanic until it starts going, no, fuck, fuck you. Because, like, it gets to a point where the safest thing to do is to dodge and to like focus your time on learning the dodge timings rather than the block timings. But then you still have to deal with, okay, well, sometimes it's going to be that thing that can only be blocked. And you've deliberately made a bunch of like very similar windups to try and go, haha, fuck you. Why'd you, why'd you fucking think you should block there? Fuck you for even trying. Mm -hmm. like it, the first it, time I truly <sighs> noticed this, because I was still playing for a while without using the perfect block too much. Mm. Then I was like, right, I've fucking had enough of this. I went into the little training yard in the hotel, gave it an honest go, and was almost immediately like, wait a minute. No, I am getting this. Then I went to the factory, and there are those white mannequin-looking oh. enemies that are like the basic enemy there. And their moveset is almost entirely fake-outs with weird animations where they'll swing for you, stop, Slow, slow, then bang. And it's so off-putting and distracting that I I hate fighting them. I hate it. And then you notice it with so many enemies. They are designed to trick you. And I get it. I get not wanting to make every attack telegraphed. But you reach a point where few of them feel properly telegraphed and then you combine it with certain bosses like the one we're talking about where they are sliding around the arena and yeah. confusing the camera when you lock on because they are waving about and their arms are like doing the same thing as those mannequin enemies like i'm gonna swing at you then slow then fast then slow and it's 
it's disorienting sometimes. I'm not opposed to a hard boss in a game like this. No. But there are some times in this where the difficulty feels less like it's about learning to get good enough to handle what's coming, and it's more you're just gonna have to make a guess and hope that you guessed right on which of the of the things is coming and feel like an idiot for not making the right read. And it doesn't feel good. Yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't. But I don't wanna I don't wanna sound too down on it though, because the vast majority of my time playing this game, I really enjoy it, and I think it's a it's a very polished, very well made game yeah. that has a really good, solid identity of its own, and I like it's got a really stupid sense of identity. The first time I picked up a ringing phone and listened to like a three minute monologue from a man who was threatening to tell me riddles and his riddle turned out to be a fucking what's black and white and red all over level. Yeah, riddle it was the Riddle spent... of the Sphinx is the first yes. one, like the most bargain bucket like but riddle. It's the fact that he spends like three fucking minutes like mm-hmm. building up to it and it's such a nothing riddle. Like this game has a good sense of humour and sense of identity mm. and it's why I hope you do get past that boss soon, cause the whole thing with the Black Rabbit Brotherhood after is so charming. And has a great boss fight with a really cool cinematic introducing it. I'm confident I will get through it. Uh, you gave me some advice that might help to cheese it a little. And, yeah. you know, it's not that long until the game's out, at which point, like, there will be things that I can go look other people's notes mm-hmm. up for, like, how do I get around this bullshit? My general thing is, like, really, really abuse throwable items because more than any other Souls like game, Throwing things is so useful. Bombs, saw blades, sharpened bits of pipe, whatever you can get your hands on, lob it. I've never once thrown one of those in this game, and you today are the reason I'm going to go fight that boss uh, tonight by doing that. <laughs> it really helps, like especially when it's got like the last few bits of health left. Like I got it down to where it was like a couple hits. And I can do this, but if I get close, I'm going to get murked. And I had, like, some saw blades and went, fuck yeah. I've had a couple of runs like that, and I wish I'd thought of it. But so many of these games, just throwables aren't worth your time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, some of the throwables here, like, scale really well. Like, if you run decks, the sharpened pipe is good. Um, The legion arms can be pretty good. Um, Like, my advice there is the flamethrower. Um, Once I put a few points into Magic Slash Advance, um, that has been a really reliable um, help at times, Uh, just flambeing everything. Um, But like you, like, I love a lot about this game, and my estimation has gone up as I've played more. Um, Like, I came to an opera house at one point, and the enemies in there are so inventive, Some of the visuals in this game are so fucking creative. Um, The things they've done with these puppets, it's really cool. Yeah, and and just generally, I think think this is one of the better Souls-like genre games in terms of really capturing that specifically Bloodborne feel of, like, the interweaving environmental design and that sort of unlocking routes that backtrack to places you've already been and how that world sort of flows together. I feel like this captures that nicely. Like, there's a lot of stuff to like here. 
it's just a few moments where my opinion will tank for a couple of hours and then sort of have to recover. And that's the experience. There are roadblocks here that have felt more hopeless than any other Souls like I've played. One of the great things about Dark Souls for me was that no matter how hard a boss was, I knew I could beat it. I would yeah. look at it and I'd say, I understand there's a, there's a good strategy here. I am doing the damage I need to do. I've just got to outlast it and I will do this. I genuinely came close to packing it in at the boss we're talking about because I genuinely thought I'm not going to do this and I don't want to. But then what followed was like some brilliant levels with some great wit and a lovely atmosphere and and a really terrific boss yeah. battle afterwards. I I will also uh note and this is like I played around a little bit with the fact that there are some you you've got a consumable item you can use to summon that lend PC people to help you with boss fights. Oh, God. And I played around with it a little bit and they're less than fucking useless. Um the balance on those the NPC summons have so little health, they die in like two hits. It's not. And they don't defend. No. They right? will not block, yeah. they will not get out the way. Yeah. The, the only way for them to be even vaguely useful is for you to play so aggressively that the boss sticks on you and you alone, because the NPC will just eat shit if the enemy targets them for even a second. They're less than useless. This is one of those things I mentioned earlier where later on you get a system introduced that would have been so much more fucking useful earlier. Later on, much later on, the cube you get off that bloke can be used to empower the spectre, the the AI ally. And Aside from the fact that the animation to use the item takes so fucking long that the Spectre may very well die before the effect pops off. I got it and I thought, my God, for the boss that was giving me a bad time, this would have been so much more useful then. And again, that's, that's the problem. Is like, those exist to be a mechanic for I'm having a bad time and I'm just not enjoying this boss and I just want to get through it. You shouldn't be nerfing that tool. If someone's gotten to the point of fuck this, I'm gonna give this yeah. a go. Don't go, well, you've not you've not gotten far enough into the game for that to be vaguely helpful yet. Like I used it on the first boss it became available for, and it turned that fight into a joke. That first fight for like the second mm. boss. You summon the Spectre for that and it's too easy. I was like this was too easy. The very next boss, right? The Spectre just runs up and gets mullered. That's that's the thing. Is like it's not that this is a conscious design decision. It feels like it's some weird balancing. Yeah, they promise you like, hey, this will be helpful, and then like, nah, fuck it, take it away. And I don't want to say it's a deliberate point of malice because of the items I found later. That says to me that they very much do intend this thing to be used. That they do want that option to be there if you want it, but they've not balanced it. it it's like the uh, the whole, hey, you have no uh, encumbrance, you've got to earn a decent encumbrance back by putting points into it. Just give me the useful version. Don't nerf it and give it back to me. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's the thing. There's just elements here that with some tweaks, with some balancing, like rebalancing, they'd be ironed out, no problem. Despite all the caveats I have about it, I would recommend this above a lot of songs like oh, yeah. games. Yeah. You know, like this isn't janky in the ways that like the surge is janky. It's got its problems, but I think it's fundamentally there is a good game here if you enjoy that genre and you're willing to put up with a couple of uh, friction points. I'm in full agreement. Like I, f- I fear I've been negative to the point of coming across like I don't enjoy the game. I have loved much of this game. It's the kind of game that I love until I don't. I love the atmosphere, the gothic sort of look, like the the puppets themselves. Like mm. they're not steampunk. It's more like a goth punk robotic thing. Again, like the enemies I was alluding to, um, there is this sort of, you go into the entertainment district and you start meeting these puppets built for entertainment and they are just so gorgeously designed, like like just beautifully designed. Um, the environment's wonderful, the level of polish and quality. This is possibly the smoothest, like mm. glitch-free game in its sort of area on that sort of budget level. Like, it runs better than any of the the big budget, like, super mainstream AAA games I've played this year. Yeah, agreed. It is so well put together. It it is a game that I'm harsh on, because the moments where I reach those friction points keep me from continuing playing a game I've been having a great time with. I am critical of it, because the points where it struggles mean that I don't get to keep seeing the creative things this game has in store. Like, I'm critical because I want this game to be better because it's, it is so much a thing I'm enjoying. Absolutely. Yeah. Gorgeous soundtrack as well. Oh, I, yeah. I, a lot of the truly great music is hidden. There are these co- collectible LPs oh, the records, that you can yeah. get, and you play them manually when you get to the hotel, like the hub area. Um, and you have to keep putting them on. I wish you could put on like a random playlist. Mm. And some of those songs, like the first one you can get... Is, is that the one with the sort of um, femme vocalist? The one that's all, close your eyes, yeah. that one. That song is fucking it's, beautiful. It's so not the tone I expect of that game, but it works so well. Yeah. It caught me off guard. Again, speaking to like how staggered everything is, like hours and hours and hours and hours in... I I got a second one, <laughs> and it was also really good. And any record I've got has been just lovely. The in-game music, sort of in the environments, is very rare. All of it's really good. So yeah, like the audio-visual presentation, easily this game's strongest area, and it's it's top fucking notch. Like when I saw the first trailer for this game. I expected a Focus Home Interactive Eurojank level kind of thing, Mm. and I like that stuff. I was blown away by a game that looks, sounds, plays on par and often better than anything by a massive big-name publisher. Agreed. That said, my one bit of advice how you can improve your experience with this game... Do at least one boss fight where you go and play the Shadow the Hedgehog original soundtrack while you're fighting <laughs> a boss. It is exactly this game's like slightly trying too hard to be edgy tone. Uh, yeah, that's that's the big one we've been playing. Uh, Conrad, you played anything else this week? 
Um, I haven't really played anything else. The only thing I've done, though, that is kind of interesting to, to me, uh, I, I've decided to get back into painting miniatures. Oh, Just, yeah? Yeah, because I found it to be really relaxing when I did it, and I'm not terrible mm. at it, and, and it's it's just kind of pleasant. And I picked up a box of Warhammer figures, um, a set of Orc Boys, just to have something, you know, sort of basic to to play around with. And it should be noted, I guess, that I haven't painted a miniature since like 2003 or 2004 and um wow games workshop models have changed a lot in 20 years <laughs> they're hollow now that's weird like, oh yeah like as the price has gone up uh the cost of making them has gone down i don't know like that's what's so weird about it is that like, they have made them more complex from a design perspective because instead of it just having it be a, a solid piece of plastic that's etched, now it's all of the little pit parts fit together. And, you know, you would get a box of, of models 20 years ago and, and they would be on sprues, but you'd have, you know, torsos and legs, arms and heads, and you could sort of mix and match all of that. This box that i picked up with 10 models in it has one model that can have a different head and a different right arm and the rest of them are all just stock builds and like it's it's so strange to me they've made more work for themselves in in making it so that they're more complex to put together and at the same time, reduced the ability for the end user to customize them. It is truly remarkable. Like, I was shocked. Um, the plastic's even better quality, though, than it was then. Like, it, they're really nice. But, Jesus Christ, what have they done? It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then I get tempted to to get back into that i bought a box of thousand suns last year and mm -hmm. never opened the box yeah I, I won't play i have no interest in playing whatsoever oh no, um, no no not warhammer specifically but me and jane have a lot of board games and jane's recently started getting into miniature painting she's been going going through some of our more miniature heavy board games and just Doing doing nice little paint jobs, but she's been going really elaborate. Um, we've got a game called Scythe that's about sort of um, diesel punk mechs, where she's been doing like little textured grass, like 3D grass effects down at the feet of the mechs and stuff like that. And they've been turning out real nice. And if, yeah, it's been nice. It's been nice having some some model painting going on in the house where I can be like, oh, what, what you been painting today? The thing I've always like really really wanted is to make a betrayal at house on the hill set oh, with miniatures yeah. for all of the things that go in there and i've i've sort of browsed around there's someone who has made a really really nice set of the investigators that are specific for betrayal that's great mm. everything else i'd have to like hunt down but then you know if i go that route one it's gonna be a ton of like figures and paint like a ton 
of painting and whatnot. And then I got to figure out a storage solution for all of that yeah. on top of it. And it's just, and if I'm going to do that, then it has to be some fancy box that contains everything and it's all custom. And now the project has ballooned in scale to a point of absurdity. You know, we're talking hundreds of dollars for a game I never play because I don't have enough people around to play board games with. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's an impractical fantasy that I will a few times a year spend the better part of a day like thinking about how I would do it. And then at the end of that day, realize this is impractical. Why have you wasted this time? But anyway... I'm going to paint models again, and it's going to be fun. Nice. Uh, the only other thing I've played, and I've not had much of a chance to play it, because it, it came out like literally this morning before we started recording, uh, but the the, DLC, the first DLC for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet uh, released this morning. Ekans! Ekans is in it again! Yeah! They put Ekans back in! That's all I know about it. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you know. I was streaming like the first two hours of it this morning and I found it Ekans and everyone was like, Steph's gonna be so happy. I mean, it just goes to show that Nintendo knows what I know. Ekans is bankable. Ekans is bankable. I'm not gonna spend money to get it. No. I, I don't play the game anymore. But yeah. Ekans is bankable. It's more Pokemon. It's gonna keep me entertained for a while. I'll sit here going, "Ah, I got more things to run around in circles until one's a different color." Uh, but that, that's it for me. You played anything else, Steph? Oh my yes. Yeah. What? What you? What you played? Oh my yes. What you, what you <laughs> played? So I'm gonna talk about two games now. One of the games is an extra added onto the main game. But I'm going to present it as two games because I want the name of the game in the podcast description. Okay. I want I want to make Conrad type it because <laughs> it's so good. Um, but the game is called Night at the Gates of Hell. <clears throat> That's the main game. Okay. This is a game done by Puppet Combo. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Puppet Combo. They've been making a name for themselves um, in the horror area. I've talked about one of their games on this show. It was before I knew Puppet Combo was a thing. I forget the exact title. It was like Nun Massacre or like Killer Nun or something. This absurd, like low poly, bad graphics, but like it's clear it's deliberately bad. Overly filtered to look like a shitty VHS tape. You can turn the filters off, but like they are like thickly filtered. And for the longest time, I have tried, I think, possibly every Puppet Combo game that's come out. And I have never been able to tell if they're a joke or not. Um, because some of them are borderline unplayable. There was one I played where you walk around in a dark house, suddenly, loud, and I mean like, loud metal music plays as this like killer with a chainsaw or an axe it was one of the two like chases you and then just chops you to bits and that's one of the other sort of trademarks of these games they are audio pro audio visual processing nightmares i can't play a puppet combo game with phoenix in the house without headphones on which is bad for me because then i have to have it like directly fed into my brain 
But this, they are audiovisual sensory nightmares. And I can't tell if, if they're designed to be good or playable. Um, I will say of Night at the Gates of Hell, it's the most playable one of these games to date. I actually beat this one. And I'm glad I did because it unlocked the other one. Um, so it is first person, a horror game, uh, a zombie game. It's inspired by the Italian director whose surname begins with an F, whose name I forget. Fulci. Fulci. There we are. I kept wanting to say, I kept saying in my head, I kept thinking, Fulci, wait, no, that's that doctor. Wait, no, that's Fauci. <laughs> that's Fauci. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fulci. Who has anyone? Zomb- hang on. Has everyone seen uh, Fauci and Lucio Fulci in the same place at the same time? Do we know they're not the same person? Both of them are very interested in epidemics. Mm-hmm. Mm, food for thought. Food for thought. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying. Go ahead. <laughs> this. So, Night at the Gates of Hell, um, in its descriptions on store pages, like it name checks Ful- um, Fulci, it makes no bones about it. Uh, Zombie 2, of course, possibly Fulci's most famous film, uh, is directly name checked. Um, I think in game as well, like as it starts, it's like telling you straight up, like, yeah, we made this game to be like Zombie 2. Uh, to the point where there is a sequence that is deliberately recreated, and it's one of the two famous ones um not the shark although there is a killer shark in it um it's not the one where the zombie fights the shark it's the other one and if you've ever seen zombie 2 or if you've ever seen a clip of it you probably know what i mean it involves an eye and a bit of wood um and they recreate that um it's like all the others full of screeching and and eye-searing colours, which has not helped my week-long migraine. Um, It is bizarre. Uh, But mechanically, one of the most straightforward of their games, you go through levels, finding keys, opening doors, all that shit. Uh, Zombies come at you, and unlike any of the other games I've played, you can actually fight them this time. You get knives that are a bit like Resident Evil, like the modern ones. So if a, a zombie gets you, if you've got a knife, you can kill it by like instantly stabbing it. Um, you get access to a gun or a shotgun. Headshots are the only way to kill them. Everything goes down in one hit, but it's got to be in the head. And you aim without a reticle, which is actually okay in this game. For the most part, zombies move slowly enough that you can get a good bead on them. All of them are gross and disgusting, and the ugly graphics actually enhance that. There's one where they clearly just, like, cobbled together a 3D model, then took a JPEG of some maggots and just, like, skinned it. And it's as cheap as it is. It's still gross, especially with the sound effects. They're so horribly gurgly. Unlike the other games, if you die, you don't, like, waste all your fucking time and start again. Uh, It'll reload an area, often with the zombies that were there, uh, that you already killed already dead. So it's way more forgiving. And that's good because there are moments where like aiming is very slow. You can't move when you aim. And if there's like one zombie after another um, and they're close to each other and you don't have knives, one of them will munch you and you're done. Some of the stuff in this game, I mean, there's a child with the face of an old man. And the first thing he says to you is you better not be looking at his mum's beautiful boobies. (laughs) 
And later on, when his mom's dead, and there's a corpse, and he's with it, and oh dear, oh, uh, wow. there is some low poly nudity, and and I mean utter fucking, utter fucking like like very bizarre dialogue. It's very bizarre, but very memorable, and it is a shit game. But I really liked it. Unlike any of the other games, which I have tried to like, because there's clearly something to them, this game is ugly and and uh, like distressing on a sensory level. The writing toes the line between the puerile and the baffling, and I was glued to it. Fascinating. And then I unlocked. Then I unlocked a game that, and I'm not exaggerating, could easily be a bit on Boston's favourite sum. Easily. It's called, and again, I want this listed as a separate game, The mm-hmm. Booty Creek Cheek Freak. Uh huh. Yes, I've heard of this actually. Linda and I were at one point going to seek it out to play it on stream because I've ah, heard that it existed. Yeah, yes. I'm thinking of streaming it. The Booty Creek Cheek Freak. <laughs> so, sadly, the game like devolves into like a slender style thing where you're mm-hmm. running around collecting, like, you've got to collect six bones. And I stopped playing when I collected six bones, got to the toilet to flush them down it and the moment i got near the toilet i was suddenly like caught and killed and had to do it again i was like i'm done this is basically then just a a, like a first person remake of the classic ljn published nightmare on elm street game for nes i mean sort of yeah i know the one you mean um (laughs) which i think rare made that I'm not entirely sure that 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 game started the way this one does, with a a naked, hairy guy out in the woods with his camp friend, plenty of homoeroticism going on. He asks him to get the thing from the car, and you never know what that thing is. You're never told. The protagonist just mentions that it is uh, long and thick, and he wasn't sure he'd get his hands around it. An old man appears out of nowhere who I believe at this point is also half naked and he explains to them the legend of this woods, the legend of the booty creek cheek freak, <laughs> who was a man once, a living man, with a honking great dump truck who sat on the public bathroom that's out in the woods and his cheeks were so fat and juicy they got caught and they got stuck and he got trapped on the toilet and starved to death. <laughs> And legend goes that if you take a shit on the floor of that bathroom, he'll come back and cut your ass off. (laughs) And and the trouble starts when the protagonist needs a shit. And you go to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom. You find the toilet. You sit on the bowl and do it. Then get a shot of the poo just on the floor. And he goes, oh no, I shit on the floor. (laughs) 
And then a man with an ass for a head and big sharp teeth looks through the window and just says, Give me them cheeks, boy. Oh my I... god. Oh my god. Has someone been listening to our show? And I was like, there needs to be a movie and it needs to star Willem Dafoe. <laughs> It oh. is glorious. Um, then you play the game like after that, and it's not as good, you know, because it's sure slender. The mechanic where you where you have to pick up air fresheners because there's a decreasing um, smell cover meter. <laughs> like the meat, like the system is rubbish. But the the conceit is that you need the air fresheners to hide it. Hide your musk because the booty creek cheek freak can smell your ass. <laughs> and and occasionally you fart. And I think the fart like temporarily oh, no. gives the game away, I think. Um I'm not entirely sure. Um and you've just gotta like watch out. Cause he is still like roaming the halls. Right. And the telltale is just <laughs> Like that is he's just sniffing for Uranus. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's the freak, freak, freak. That's amazing. That, yeah, that that sure is something. There's another extra as well. The um, the house of Doctor Fleshenstein or something, and that's just like a horde mode. It's very similar to like Call of Duty Zombies or something. Um, but yeah, this is the first. Puppet combo game where I played it all the way through. I was transfixed. Um, I am tempted to reinstall Nun Massacre or whatever it was called. Um, I did. Oh, what's the one? It was released a couple months ago. It was released before this one. Um, Home something. But that's the one I think that got quite famous. Um, where you're basically like, there's a masked killer in your hiding from him in a house um and it's got that, a real mood is it simply called murder house it might simply be called murder house like all of these things all of these games they make are like doing their best to really evoke b-movie horrors and like yeah. proper like um exploitation b-movie horrors and they are it's a team that's done their homework. Like they clearly fucking love those films. And I, I love those films. So I think that's why I've always tried to play them. And night at the gates of hell, I think nails it. It is playable enough to where I could enjoy it and has so much fucking weirdness. And I played with all the filters on cause I'm going to do a review and I wanted the default sort of visuals. You can turn them off. But it's it's just fascinating. Or in terms of the visuals, the audio, the bizarre writing, the disgusting, disgusting visuals and concepts and conceits. It is an exploitation movie made into a game as best they can. And I think that's part of the reason why the graphics look so shit and why it's cheaply cobbled together is because that's the video game equivalent of shitty props in one of these films. And I've played many games that are bad on purpose and they're just fucking bad. But this one hits that spot where it is bad on purpose, but still 
enjoyable and has a real charm to it because it's made it's not just made by people who can't make a game so thought they'd make a shit one and call it deliberate it's clear these developers have chops like they do know what they're doing and i think that's the differentiator so as as unbearable as i found some of their stuff before i sort of almost would recommend it to a very basically the score i'm going to give it when i review it I imagine it's going to be very conditional and it's only going to be relevant to a, a particular type mm. of person. But that person is, there are people who are going to fucking love this game and they won't entirely be wrong. So yeah, Night at the Gates of Hell, do not let the cover art fool you because it is the kind of hand-drawn shitty cover art that like genuinely disgusts me when I see it in terms of just how shitty it looks. But behind that is a game I won't forget in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Should we talk about the news bits we've got to talk about? Because oh, there's, there's a couple of them this week. And in, in particular, there's um there's one story. Um, for anyone who's unaware, Unity has destroyed their entire reputation in about 30 seconds. I don't even know where to jump in on this. Um, the short version, Unity has decided that they want to charge developers a fee every single time someone installs their game. Not every time someone purchases it, every time someone installs it. This was announced as coming into effect on January 1st of next year. It is a the Unity runtime fee will be charged to any game that has passed a revenue threshold in the past year and a lifetime install count. There's a lot of bullshit this spirals into. Do you want to do you want to take this over Conrad? Well, a little bit. Mm. Uh yeah, I mean I've got I've had some some thoughts about this and been and looking at it. But yeah, it's so the way that they have structured this yeah. is based on your Unity subscription there are differing thresholds and charges for each of these runtime installations. At the free level and the first paid tier, mm-hmm. this is 200,000 total downloads and $200,000 in sales in the last 12 months. And after that point, they are charging 20 cents an installation. Yes. Which and... is... There's a lot of problems with that. Oh, I mean, my first thought was, you know, consider being an independent, like a tiny one-person developer who makes a game and, you know, against all of the odds, it goes viral and becomes a huge thing and you were selling it for a dollar. And then all of a sudden, as soon as you have made $200,000 on it, well, and technically, if you release it on Steam, like... Let's be honest, $140,000 on it. Now yeah. suddenly you're going to lose another 20% of your revenue before tax on everything that sells. Unless you pay $5,000 to Unity to yes. upgrade your subscription. As people have pointed out, like there's a lot of use cases where it's ju- it, it's making a lot of use cases for games developed in Unity just not make sense anymore. Demos, 
are now a risk for developers to oh, offer. Yeah. Uh, DRM-free versions of their games are risky, including your game in a charity bundle, which we'll get to it. Unity says that it won't count if someone gets your game from a charity bundle, but also How Unity, will they devel- know? Unity developers are acknowledging openly they have no fucking way to know. But yeah, yeah. charity bundles are a risk. Uh, code giveaways are a risk including your Unity-developed game on Game Pass, because they consider installations regardless of whether they were purchased. They consider streamed plays. So, like, if you have your game embedded in a browser and someone plays it, that counts as an installation. Multi-device users are risky to developers. Uh, Unity is said outright, if you own a PC and a Steam Deck and you purchase a game and you install it on both devices, that will count as two installs and the developer will get charged twice. If you offer an update post-release to your game and someone had uninstalled your game to make space and now, oh, there's an update, I should reinstall it, the developer's going to get charged again because you installed it again. So this is bad for, like, the, you know, as I mentioned, that tiny developer. And there aren't going to be a lot of those. and that's, But where this is really going to hurt are the low-mid-level publishers mm. who are already struggling. We've seen recently uh, both Tiny Build and Devolver have pretty disappointing quarters. A lot of that attributed to uh, game subscription services like Game Pass and PlayStation Plus no longer giving the payouts that were anticipated. Devolver have actively like made a note like since this news of going, if you're pitching games to us, you need to tell us what engine you're developing it in. Yeah. Like, specifically going... If you're developing in Unity, like, fucking let us know, because we don't want to be involved. Yeah, that's, that's, and I can't blame them, because, like, imagine being in their position. I don't know how many games they currently have under contract for publication, but they made a lot of calculations based on revenue models that have suddenly changed dramatically. I can point you at one example. The developers of Cult of the Lamb, they did a joking tweet going, look forward to Cult of the Lamb not being on sale from January 1st. But then they did a post that was a bit more serious where they were like, we had games in development for Unity. We had been pitching games to publishers we were working on in Unity. Unity is what we know. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're realising... We're going to have to throw away the engine experience we have and learn a new engine before starting from scratch on pitching these projects to publishers. We are looking at probably multiple years of delay on us producing any new games because of this news, because of how much it fucks up our our budgeting. Right, yeah, like, I mean, imagine being a developer who's two to three years in on a project in Unity that suddenly has this hit. Like... Where do you go? What do you do? Do you finish? Yeah. Um, and, like, one one point that, like, I think was well put by, um... There was a tweet that's doing the round from Rami Ismail, I think, that was, um... Hmm. Let me find it. Fun thought experiment with Unity's new pricing model. If you made a game that reached $200,000 in revenue at a 50-50 publisher split, and you decided to support, for example, the charity bundle for racial justice you would end up under Unity's new model, $60,000 in debt. Yep. For for offering your game in that charity bundle. Yep. Another point that I think is is really worth noting, and, and setting aside that this is sort of, it's a strange, it's not a strange move. 
this goes back to the enshittification principle, yeah. uh, which I've brought up in recent weeks. They brought people into the ecosystem by offering all of the goodies. They started then offering, uh, you know, taking things away from the base level user to make them available to paid users. And now they're fucking the paid users. This is this is how it works. But uh, I think it is for uh, an engine like Unity that really has built its back on being openly available uh, and largely freely available for people to introduce themselves mm. into the industry. I think it's going to have a real chilling effect on them. But you know who's not going to be hurt by this? The large publishers. Yeah. At the highest levels of this, it's not to say that the uh, percentages are negligible, but for full retail games running Unity, not a problem. <laughs> AAA games running Unity, not going to be an issue. They'll be able to factor these costs in. This is always the fucking will... way. Yes. Yeah, always the fucking way. Like, the big... I mean, well, I mean, we take this right to its highest level with uh, taxes and the mega-rich, who are never imp impacted by that. Or, like, speeding fines. Where a rich person, they, it's nothing to them. It's not a punishment. There's no punishment for speeding in America. In Britain, you can risk having your license taken away at least. But in America, no real punishment for rec reckless driving for the rich. I, as, as I've seen pointed out, like it's a, an old sort of saying, um, a punishment that only impacts the poor isn't a punishment, except a punishment for being poor. And this is what we're seeing here. This is a fine for being small because for a big publisher, it's no fine at all. Yeah, you're 100% correct there. And I, I, I view this as an anti-competitive action industry-wide. By taking this step, they have made it that much harder for any developer that is trying to enter this business to do so. Mm. Um, and, and that is uh, inherently to the benefit of the larger entities that exist within the space. So, and, yeah, there is another aspect of this that has been being discussed, and I think it's important to acknowledge, is the ability to maliciously manipulate this. And Unity will say, oh, we've got, you know, um, we were developing AI safeguards to detect malicious oh. stuff, blah, 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 Good. proprietary, yeah. whatever nonsense. That's always for your own good. Yeah, but the, the point that a lot of people have made is we know for a fact that installing the same game on multiple devices that a user owns will charge a developer multiple times. If a person purchases a cheap game that's a couple of quid and goes, oh, there's a trans in it, there's uh, a disabled yep. person in it, and I don't like that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna refund it or whatever, but before I do, I'm gonna install it on every machine in my house so that I charge that developer hopefully more money than I paid, and then refund it so I've taken money out of the developer's pocket twice. Yeah, no, this can absolutely be weaponized. Yeah, like, someone is going to find a way to, like, set up um a series of, of rolling virtual machines that create a new virtual machine, install the game, new virtual machine, install the game. People will find a way to manipulate this to target minority creators and financially devastate them. 
Like, yep. it's a matter of time before someone does it. Yep. And that's... Uh, I wish I could say that sounded like unrealistic Doom saying, but you are 100% correct. Yeah. Also, fun fact, um, look, I can't legally prove this, but I can say it sure seems... It sure seems, in my opinion, likely uh, that there was a bunch of fucking insider trading going on at Unity in the days running up to this announcement coming. No. What? I know. Shocking. Um, I mean, we need to point out that um, John Riccatello's in charge of this shit. Someone yeah. reminded me of that because in response to this, they posted a, an old creepy Photoshop I made of him. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned John Riccatello. Um, yeah. He's one of the people who might have been insider trading a little oh, bit, maybe. What? Oh, you don't yeah. say. Reading from Eurogamer, uh, Euro- Unity Executive sold thousands of shares in the weeks leading up to last night's hugely controversial announcement it will be charging developers when their game is uh, installed. John Riccatello shifted 2,000 shares last week on September 6th which is part of a wider trend over the past year where he has sold more than 50,000 shares in total and bought none. Several other Unity board members also sold shares in the last couple of weeks, including President of Growth, Toma Barzeev, who sold 37,500 shares on September 1st for around $1.4 million, and uh, Shlomo Devrat, uh, who sold 68,000 shares on August 30th for around $2.5 million. Dodgy pricks. That's, that's a lot of people selling, like, at the end of August, beginning of September, about a week or two ago, selling between one and a half and $2.5 million in shares right before a potentially devastating announcement that was going to hugely impact uh, public perception of the company. Yeah, that definitely seems like something the Security and Exchange Commission yeah. will want to take a look at. I cannot prove <laughs> that they were insider trading, but if I was someone whose job was to investigate insider trading, I'd go have a sniff around there, I think. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, definitely suspicious as fuck. Just, just, a, just a dad, right? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so yeah, this... Uh, over the last like 24 hours since this was announced, Unity has kept trying to clarify or roll things back, and it's not fundamentally fixing the problem. So I'll I'll read from um from Axios. Um Unity told Axios last night that it had regrouped to further discuss some of the issues raised by game developers. They say that they that they will only charge after a user first installs a game, not on future installs. They have not suggested how they would know if it was a first install or not. Um, but they're like, no, 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 this will stop players install the bombing a game. But, again, people have pointed out, you've said that, like, Installs on new devices will still count, so there's still going to be ways to install the bomb. Another point raised was that this could severely impact studios who've released their their games onto services like Xbox Game Pass. Unity has now said download fees would be charged by Unity to subscription service owners, so Microsoft in the case of Game Pass, which doesn't change the end result. What it says is, we're not going to see Unity games on services like Game Pass because someone's going to have to pay a fee every time they're downloaded, and that's not a good deal. So, like, the the end result's not going to be any different, really, there. They can't seem to decide on these things. Um, Some of the confusion going around is, whoever owns the license for the uh, the Unity 3D version will foot the bill, which has pointed out that, like, porting studios... 
that haven't made their own game and aren't making money on every copy sold, but are being paid a lump sum to port a game into a like in onto a new platform might be the ones who have to pay the ongoing fees for copies sold because they're the ones that had the copy of Unity. A Unity per- a spokesperson, Mark Witten, said he estimated only 10% of developers using the engine would be hit. So that's alright, I guess, and only 10% of people making games in Unity are going to be impacted. I want to know the source of that number of users, the total number of users. Like, is that, I don't know, everybody who's ever installed Unity Lifetime, everybody that has a Unity subscription, everybody that's made an account at Unity? What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, that, that figure means fucking nothing, right? 10% of that number could be very, 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 very big. Yeah. Fucking ridiculous. They've tried to defend it by saying, a large majority of Unity editor users are currently not paying anything and will not be affected by this change. Yes, because they installed it, tinkered around for 30 seconds at most, and then closed it and never opened it again. It's not... Yeah. Oh. The, the developers who will be impacted are generally those who have successful games and are generating revenue way above the thresholds we outlined in our blog. For fuck's sake, just pull my third leg. This means that developers who are still building their businesses and growing their audience of their games will not pay a fee. Yeah, they'll just hit a stumbling block and then suddenly be like, oh, I got too big now, all my money's gone. Yeah, they'll be terrified of success. Yeah, um, Unity has also clarified that the changes are not retroactive or perpetual, and it will only well, I mean, charge... It better not be. In fact, I don't think anybody assumed that it would be, because even that, like, as as ridiculous and bad as this idea is and what a mess the complexity of it would yeah. be that would be so far beyond the pale that they that I, yeah that yeah so they're not going to charge you for installs that happen before january 1st 2024 but games released prior to january 2024 will be charged this fee so if you released your game before this this was announced you right. you have no ch- choice but to be obligated to start paying Unity money. They're basically going, you're a, tra- you're a trapped audience, you released a game on our platform, we can just say, you owe us money going forward now. Despite that not being something you agreed to when you made your game. Um, well, you know, they can, they can change these agreements anytime they fucking want to, which is something else we all need to be remembering at all times. Another, you know, just lovely uncertainty of the ground upon which we stand. I do think that, like, the impact on games that are, you know, more than six months old will probably be pretty insignificant. But I do think that in terms of number of installs over a year, the risk of that is pretty low unless it's intentional you know, specifically to target someone, um, mm. it, it will be harder to hit that threshold. Because if you've made that kind of money, you've probably paid for a Unity subscription. Concerns people have is, like, how is this being, re- like, recorded by Unity? Because, like, a big question some people have been bringing up is, pirated copies, are they going to show up as an install? This and... was a, a thought that I had very early on as well, and no, I don't think they will, and here's why. The cracking scene loves the developers, by and large. For them, it is a matter of principle that this stuff is DRM-locked, and they want to share games. You know, they still want people to buy games, 
because if games are not bought under our system, there will be no games for them to crack and enjoy. Also, they will block this. They will find a way to prevent Unity from knowing these installs came off of their pirated release. I think going forward, you will see that happen. If there is... I don't know what the scene is in terms of, like, currently out there Unity games that people have cracked. Have they bothered to remove whatever this is? Probably not prevented a runtime check to Unity. I would assume yeah. not, because that wouldn't inhibit the functioning of the right. game to have that in there, but they will be looking for it now. Yeah, well, my point being, let's say Cult of the Lamb, for example, a game that's already out that we know is, like, their devs are concerned about this. Let's say they did pull it off sale on January 1st. I know mm -hmm. that that's not a serious thing they're suggesting. It seems like it's a joke, but let's say they did. And then some big streamer did a, a playthrough of it and a bunch of people went, oh, shit, that does look like a cool game. Can't get it anywhere. I'll go pirate it. And mm -hmm. Unity recognises those pirated installations as installations, and despite having pulled their game off sale, they are still getting charged yeah. for a wave of installs. Like, yeah. that is not a ridiculous hypothetical. No. And there are ways that, like, the the piracy scene can address that on, on some level, but, um, you know, like, they can do a repack of it and yeah. try to get that to the top of the the torrent list but it it would be hard um and it would you know we we can't rely on that there are developers who've made unity games who are doing tweet threads at the moment going i might just push an update to my game that blocks it communicating with unity like what if i just quietly push an update where unity just that would be a violation of their terms it, of service agreement it, with it unity sure, it sure certainly. would it sure yeah. would be but i yeah. think Honestly, my my gut says Unity doesn't fucking care if people don't like uh, don't like them. Is there room for a mass boycott by developers where they just go cool on a mass? We are going to stop our games communicating with Unity. It feels like that's the kind of shit that's needed. I think if enough prominent people um, who are able and willing to stand up to this do like it's the people who are most capable of standing up to this that have no incentive to do so yeah you know the that's and that's a huge problem but if unity were to learn that developers were doing this they would have to pursue some sort of action and it would lead to lawsuits, and that would lead to government intervention inherently, because once it goes through the court system, now we've got some precedent and contract law and so forth. There's a lot of ways this can blow up, and it's going to be a very, very interesting year for Unity, I think. It is. There are a lot of game uh, development engines that are certainly jumping on this opportunity to go hey, we're going to start putting together resources and if you are used to developing in Unity or have a project halfway done in Unity on what you can do to move over to our engine. I've seen a lot of developers saying even if this all gets rolled back, you have permanently hurt trust. Unity's reputation is going to have an incredibly hard time recovering from this. Mm -hmm. they, have, they have shot themselves in the foot long term. And it took so long for them to develop to develop goodwill. Yeah. Like, you remember what a bad reputation Unity had as an engine forever and I, ever? 
the one time I interviewed John Riccatello, it was specifically to talk to him about, hey, do you think the fact that the only games that say Made in Unity when booted up are cheap games from inexperienced developers hurts the reputation of your engine? Like, that's the point we were at with talking about Unity at one point was yeah. people only think of, like, the worst farmed out games as being Unity games because they're the games that you you enforce sticking your logo on. Like, they've done so much work to fix that reputation just to throw it in the trash. Yep, pretty amazing. Uh, we had a couple of very quick bits of news to finish up with. In a thing that feels like parody when you read it, official Xbox credit cards will soon be a thing in the US. Everybody um, else has one. I had a PlayStation credit card, like, you, about you did? 10 or so years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. I don't remember how I got it. Like, I, I don't remember how it came into my possession, but at one point... A long, long time ago, yeah. You can get credit cards for fucking anything, that's the thing. Yeah, build build up your credit card debt in order to accrue points you can spend on games and add-ons via xbox.com. Lovely stuff. Get get three months of free Xbox Game Pass Ultimate for for getting a credit card. I think I actually did get some Sony like electronic shit off that credit card at one point. Yeah. Like these get these point reward programs can be of benefit if you know they're managed correctly. Um, but it's not. Yeah, the vast majority of people will just wind up spending a shit ton of money and going into debt. The the way I will put it is, I don't think any video game company that releases their own software that contains loot box microtransactions should be allowed to also offer a credit card. No, you've not proven yourself financially responsible. And the last story we've got this week is, uh, we've got another update on the slow, perpetual death of E3. So you know how E3 2023 didn't happen? I do remember that that didn't happen. Yeah, this was meant to be the first year that, uh, after they'd been purchased. You remember back in 2022, uh, Reed Pop purchased E3, uh, the group that owns, like, P- the PAX conventions and... Uh, EGX here in the UK, uh, they purchased it back in 2022, and they were going to be in charge uh, of it. Did they purchase it, or did they, um, like, get the contract to run it? They were going to be the production company behind E3. I can see that much. They were going to be in charge of putting on E3 2023. They are no longer involved in E3. Um, they've, they've stepped away, um... It has been confirmed by the ESA that there is no organizer or location to hold E3 2024. I mean, this makes total sense. Read Pop is a, um, they're an organization that does consumer shows. Yeah, but that was the direction E3, the ESA was trying to push E3. But there's not going to be anybody there to attract the consumers. Everybody's yeah. gone. Without the draw of the major publishers and console manufacturers, there's not going to be any traction. I mean, for for fuck's sake, Penny Arcade Expo still gets Gabe and Tycho to trot themselves out to these things. Yeah. That's that's the thing, you know. If Gabe and Tycho stopped showing up, we would see a drop-off of PAX attendance. Yeah. Weirdly. Yeah, having a look at this... uh... Reed Pop has said it will not work on future iterations of E3. The ESA has also informed the LA Convention Center that it will not turn up there in 2024. 
Although, according to GamesIndustry.biz, it understands that the ESA is looking to 2025 for a complete reinvention of the show. Another one? Yeah, another one! So that'll be, what, five years, uh, five, six years between the last E3 and definitely the reinvention that's definitely going to happen this time? And they've had so many. Like, I still remember that one in, what, 2006? Where they tried oh, yeah. to make it, like, they took all the expo bit out of it and everyone was taking shuttles to different places and it was boring as fuck. I must say, of all those kind of events, like, for all the problems with Gamescom, at the very least they do a really good job of, like, here is the business area that's just for business and, like, is fairly limited on who is in there and you just show up for your appointment at your numerically found booth and you do your appointment and you're done. It's nowhere near trying to do, like, ah, the public is here and celebrities are here and there's flashing lights everywhere and I have to do my work in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. But, uh... Yeah, E3 is not having a good time, but yeah, fingers crossed for 2024, or tw- sorry, 2025, I guess. Good luck, man. <laughs> oh, it's it's dead. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there you go, that's that's it. We just about got to kept us under two hours. <laughs> well, E3 may be dead, but what isn't dead is Laura Kate Dale's career, which is alive and well, brimming, vital. In fact, um, maybe you oh, could tell the listeners about it. Going from strength to strength. Strength to strength. Oh, well, you can you can find the stuff I'm doing at Laura K. Buzz pretty much everywhere. Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Patreon. That's the one that pays the bills as little as a dollar a month over on patreon.com slash Laura K. Buzz really helps. Mastodon, Blue Sky, all the things. Laura K. Buzz. Uh, this Friday, uh, or it might go up a day early. It might be third. It might be up by the time you hear this. Uh, there's an episode of Access Ability going up about um, the, f- the 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 recently more common trend of pay a premium price to get access to the game five days early, and the accessibility concerns that surround that that range from the obvious of weaponizing FOMO, uh, which particularly impacts people who are you know uh, struggle a little more with uh, impulse control, but sort of ranging through to things like how that intersects with um, people's ability to access information about accessibility in a in that weird five-day window where the game's technically not released yet. Um, look forward to that. I'm really proud of that video. Um, just Laura K. Buzz. You'll find all my stuff everywhere. What about you, Conrad? Well, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky... Uh, you can hang out with me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash that Conrad Zimmerman, where I'm gonna be I'm gonna be doing some of the painting on stream, um, because that just seems like a good pair of activities to do together. Um, you can hear me talking about snacks on Let's Talk About Snacks wherever podcasts are available. And go check out Red Planet. It's a live stream and podcast that I produce with four lovely people who uh, all want to make the world a better place, and that's what it's all about. We just had a conversation with uh, Nick Estes, um, who is an indigenous activist here in the United States, talking about the case of uh, Leonard Peltier, who is a... He's the longest-held political prisoner in the United States. Interesting story, really, really good episode. Um, and, oh, you can buy anti-capitalist propaganda and official Jimquisition merchandise at mercenarycreative.com. And everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? Who? James Stephanie Sterling. Oh, that is correct. That is correct. Uh, Patreon, I don't know why I was, like, so 
Tory about that. Um, <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Uh, Patreon.com slash Jimquisition. Uh, that's that. Um, not streamed in quite some time because I just I haven't been able to. But uh, when I do, it will be at Twitch TV slash uh, Jim Sterling. Um, my upcoming wrestling dates are um, September 25th. And Sheffield, that's PPW, that's my training school's first ever public uh, grown-up show, First Pursuit, uh, Sheffield, September 25th. Uh, My next date after that is October 10th, and that is in Manchester. That'll be the next Sovereign Pro Wrestling show. Um, Just sort of Google First uh, Pursuit Pro Wrestling and Sovereign Pro or at SovPro for those details. Uh, Thank you all so much. Uh, We will be with you next week. Bye. 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 So I went all weird then. Bye. There we are. Nailed it. That does sound like a man.